One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like acorns, irritability, and the yawn. Oh, I love the idea of doing the yawn. I, I think that would really <laughs> test us. All we could do, snails, nails, and whales, scales, tails, and males. But actually, what I really want to do, because I've just come back from... Lisbon, which is utterly fabulous. I want to do the history of tiles, Sam. I went to a tile mu- the National Tile Museum, which is not Ooh. as boring as it might sound. It's no, utterly, utterly, utterly fascinating. You say, yeah, we... you say that with a yawn in your voice. <laughs> no, I'd love to do the history of the tile. I think that's fantastic. I could talk to you all about my trip to Samarkand in Uzbekistan, Ooh, which is let's... the tile capital of the world. Let's do that next week. What I don't know about tiles, having traipsed my children around this museum, is not worth knowing, Samuel Willis. You know what? I was also I was in, in Croatia the other week, and I was in, in Split in the great Roman palace um, of Diocletian, so it's the the, the most uh, the, the perfectly most perfectly preserved Roman palace in the world, and um, they have a particularly splendid mosaic floor. And it also reminded me of um, I I think some of my earliest sort of memories of being interested in history come from mosaics because I was brought up in St Albans, and there's an amazing. Uh, Roman Museum uh, based around Verulamium and one of the kind of the things that smacks you around the face and says find out more about me is the mosaics there um, so oh yeah tiles like it tiles it, it's very very good we should get sponsored by a tile company I think as well <laughs> <laughs> Top, it would be very tops useful. Tiles. Ha- <laughs> tops tiles, yes. Hey, however, we are digressing monstrously, more monstrously than usual, because for the moment we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam Willis, who knew that the history of leaves is in fact all about Agent Orange and the Vietnam War? It's about good luck four-leaf clovers, superstition and nettle-eating. It's about Christmas and what to do with festive foliage. And it's also about (laughs) leaf-peeping in modern-day New England. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of dolls... Yes, yes, dolls have a history. It's, in fact, all about 17th and 18th century fashions. It's about the history of Barbie, 20th century consumerism and patriarchy, Lord and Lady Clapham, and the Victorian Albert... The Victoria and Albert Museum's Victorian automatons. Who knew? 
Who knew indeed? <laughs> Very good. You're probably wondering who is doing all the who knewing. Um, let me just say of my fellow presenter that if history was tattoo ink and the present day a blank canvas of human skin, this man would be the tattoo artist extraordinaire of the present, colouring in, sketching, writing, doodling on the present day in pictograms of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And I've already name-dropped you several times uh, <laughs> today, but were you not paying attention and were wondering still who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot these episodes? Well, let's just say that if he were a skin-related historian, he'd only be, well, not, not really only be, but sort of be like uh, Dr John Stockton Hoff, US surgeon and unusual bibliophile. Actually, Sam has nothing at all in common with this person. However, what he is common, what is common for him <laughs> is that he is so obsessed with his art of history. And I will explain exactly why later on. Because this man was a US surgeon and a rather unusual bibliophile and used skin oh. to cover his important rare books. I'm not saying that you're like this in any way, Sam. But you've guessed it, it's the f famous historical adventurer in a rambling kind of way, Dr Sam Willis. Yes, I'm sitting here on a desk with a lampshade made of human skin <laughs> next to my computer. Next to some uh, some tasty Chianti and fava beans, I imagine. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, we're, do we're doing skin. Whose um, idea was skin? I think it was, I mentioned it and then you said, let's do it. Oh, yeah. We've done. We've certainly done tattoos before, and we've done scars. So it's yes. a natural. Um, it's a natural sort of development of that. Um, scars we love, don't we? Because they they it, it allows the human body to be read like a like a historical document. You can look at your scars and you can say, "Oh, I got that scar in 1988 running around a house in Cornwall," and it takes you back. It's a little bridge to a different period in the past. So scars are particularly interesting, and that's just one aspect of skin. I suppose the um, tattoos I mentioned earlier. Tattoos obviously very important, but we're thinking about about it maybe in those terms, but also more broadly today. Uh, I joked about my lampshade, James, but. Um, I, weirdly, it was one of the first things I was thinking about. I, I was doing some work on the Second World War um, and um, and concentration camps in particular. And I came across the story of the lampshade made out of human skin, which was um, apparently um, seen in uh, Buchenwald, um, the, uh, the, the very notorious... Nazi camp there. Um, really interesting because it's it basically become a kind of a trope of Nazi horrors, but there is a great deal of uncertainty about whether this thing actually existed or not. Um, and um, I was just quite interested in that because so many of the horrors you come across with um, with the Nazi camps are all true, but this one perhaps perhaps it isn't. There are a couple of eyewitness accounts um, suggesting that there was uh, there, there was a. Uh, a lampshade made of um, tattooed human skin in particular, and it was made uh, for one um, very specific person in the camp. Uh, but there, uh, in subsequent uh, investigations, um, it seems that this may not necessarily have been true. Hmm. I, I, I think we're going in, in similar directions in, in, in parts here. But I was, I was spitballing about skin, as you do. And as I said, hmm. I've been wandering around... Lisbon, and in particular visited the National Gallery of Ancient Art, and I was struck Ooh. by the amount of skin on display, nudes, oh, right. cherubs everywhere. You know, and it got me thinking about 
about the the artistic meaning of skin. And if Ooh, you think good. about something about like Titian's Venus of Urbino and the idea of, you know, of the images to do with seduction, beauty, love. And skin has always been central to ideas about beauty, particularly female skin and of different differing hues and and think about makeup and 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 the color and texture of skin and this leads us on to thinking about the skin as a blank canvas onto which society could imprint itself which makes us think about scars and tattoos as you already said we've got a lovely little chapter on tattoos in our book on the romans but then we can also think about skin color which gets us into the world of race and ethnicity the colour of your skin and markers of, of difference. But also we can think about different kinds of skin. We've talked about human skin here, but also animal skin. And we've talked about leather. But we can also, in the past, in some of our podcasts, but we can also think about furs. We can think about uses of of skin. James, let me just jump in there. You're talking about uses of skin. I've just had a kind of moment of revelation. Uh, I'm I'm sitting here in my study and I was thinking, what are these uses of skin? Um, certainly, I appreciate vellum and everything. And I, I, I thought, oh, I've got a leather-bound book very close to me, so there's a bit of skin. But then I looked around, and with some measure of horror, I've just realised how many things made out of skin there are in my study. So to start with, we have I've got three swords, uh, and they've all got handles made out of snakeskin. Um, two naval ones and one army one. Um, I've got a beautiful uh, sort of long um armchair uh, which is made out of um it's, it's kind of victorian i think it is and uh, it's a really shiny beautiful beautiful leather which i presume is uh, from a cow um i've got uh, as i said i've got a piece of vellum i've got several leather bound books um and then i thought on top of that i've got a suede jacket hanging up behind me and um and i just looked at my feet and i'm wearing some sheepskin boots <laughs> so uh, initially thinking that there was no uh, no skin i've just suddenly realized with a with a, a, a genuine kind of feeling of horror that i'm i'm basically surrounded by skin of different types <laughs> horrible horrible indeed um but that also makes you think about why you might kind of consciously hang on to it so i think my point here is i've acquired lots of objects which just yes they are made out of skin but i didn't buy them because they were made out of swift skin and i haven't kept them because they are made out of skin necessarily though maybe the sofa is particularly beautiful but um there are certainly examples of people in the past holding onto things specifically because they are made out of skin and I was mentioning before that I've just been in Croatia, uh, travelling down the uh, east coast of the Adriatic from Zadar down to Sibenik and then split further down to Dubrovnik. Um, a fascinating place. I was doing it, um, tracing the, the remnants of the wonderful Venetian Empire. And while I was there, I came across the most amazing skin story. So what you need to know about the Venetians, uh, they rose up they, um, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Roman Empire when power was still in Byzantium, uh, but it was collapsing in Italy. And there were people being threatened uh, all over this area of northern Italy going across to uh, the Istrian Peninsula. A lot of uh, refugees settling in what became the Venice Lagoon, trying to find uh, a bit of safety in the marshes. They made their money... Uh, trading salt um, initially 
um, extremely skilled maritime traders that they were. Then they rose into power. They 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 made a huge deal out of money out of the Silk Road uh, by transporting all the goods which came over land from China and India, uh, getting to Constantinople, and then needing um, needing some maritime help, some maritime legs to get them across the Mediterranean. The Venetians stepped into this this gap, and they became the the real middlemen between wealthy Europeans and Germany and France and Britain, uh, Portugal and Spain, and so on, and the the exotic goods of the East. And a real breakthrough though at the beginning of the 13th century with the fourth crusade one the interesting things that happened in this area was the rise of the crusades and none of those crusading armies could really maintain themselves and in some places not even get to the holy land at all without ships um, the first crusade was unusual because they took the overland route but all subsequent crusades um, relied heavily on on maritime power and the venetians stepped into that gap particularly so with the fourth crusade Anyway, to cut a long story short, the uh, Venetians end up manipulating the Crusaders and they make them go and capture Zadar, uh, which is a city, uh, a Christian city. So they, they make a Christian army go and capture a Christian city in the Adriatic. And then, not only that, after the success of Zadar, they go and they, they actually capture Constantinople. That not, not only a Christian city, but the largest Christian city in Christendom. Um, after that, it gave them so much wealth and power and land and territory um, that they ended up establishing a huge maritime empire right down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And that was fine until the mid-15th century when along came the Turks. They capture Constantinople and with that they get hold of loads and loads of sailors who can build ships and they contest uh, the sea power of the Mediterranean with the Venetians. Anyway, that's your background. So what we've got here is a huge conflict of the two biggest powers in the period of that part of the Mediterranean in the 15th century. And um, the Ottomans just grow and grow and their aggression gets stronger and stronger. And what happens is they decide to besiege and attack uh, the Venetian island of Cyprus. You've been to Cyprus, James? I have been to Cyprus. Mm, what a place. Delightful. Absolutely delightful. Very green, surprisingly green. And that's one of the reasons the Venetians liked it. Because if you're a Venetian, you need two things. Well, you need wood for two things. You need wood for ships to protect your trade and protect your empire. And you also need wood to uh, create the foundations for all of those wonderful houses in Venice built in the swamp. They're all built on wooden pillars. So the Ottomans fall on Cyprus and um, they, 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 they attack... Um, and finally, they breach the fortifications. The, the Venetians do very well in their defence. And one of the leaders of oh, the, the main guy in leading the defence is a guy called Antonio Bragadin. So the Ottoman commander agrees that once the city surrenders, the city of Famagusta, um, the largest city in Cyprus, um, he says that basically all Westerners in the city are allowed to exit under their own flag. They get safe passage. Um, but... Just before this happens, the Ottoman general accuses Bragadine of murdering Turkish prisoners and hiding munitions. And he's so furious that so many Ottomans have died that uh, he, he takes out a knife. He cuts off Bragadine's ear personally, and then he orders his guards to cut off his other ear and also his nose. Um, he's then put in prison. Um, his wounds get infected. And then the humiliation really gets uh, gets piled on him. 
Um, he's dragged around the walls with sacks of earth and stone on his back. He's then tied to a chair. He's hoisted to the yardarm of the Turkish flagship where uh, all the sailors stand around pointing at him and taunting him. And eventually he's taken to the main square of Famagusta where he is tied to a column and he is skinned. They, they flay him alive. Once they've done that, he dies halfway through that. Uh, chop his body up into four. But they have his skin. And what they do is um, they stuff it with straw and they make a kind of hideous dummy out of it. And they put his military insignia back on to his body. And he's sort of shown riding around an ox around the streets of Famagusta. Um, later, his dummy is shown on the on the coast of the Levant, and it actually goes all the way back to Constantinople. Then, uh, a little later, uh, well, this so enrages the Venetians that it actually it's, this is just before a, a, a battle called the Battle of Lepanto, where uh, a, a, a Christian league of which the Venetians were one part um, absolutely annihilate the Ottoman fleet, um, and. There is a, a huge fight back against the growth of Ottoman power. And one part of that is a little after the battle is that Bragadine's skin is taken back from Constantinople and it's brought to Venice. And you can still see it today. It is preserved in the Church of St. John and Paul uh, inside an urn. So there you are, James, a bit of a bit of fighting over someone's skin its skin as a relic its skin as a trophy of war um its skin being used uh, for ritual humiliation and punishment there are a great many themes here um but it was just one particular aspect of someone uh, acquiring skin on purpose and deliberately keeping it because of its symbolic and political value it's it's very uh, a very good story for Halloween as well, Sam. Mm, I it think. is, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, taking this skinning of humans in a different direction, I want to talk about books bound in human skin. And I have been reading a fascinating book uh, recently by a librarian uh, from Philadelphia, uh, a woman called Megan Rosenbloom. And this one is specially for Halloween. And the book is called Dark Archives, A Librarian's Investigation into the Science and History of Books Bound in Human Skin. And would you believe it, Sam Willis, that this actually has a technical term? Have you ever heard of something called anthropodermic bibliopagy? Which basically is the binding of books in human skin. So the book is absolutely fascinating and one of the big examples that is at the core of it relates to a medical man called Dr John Stockton Huff. And this was the person that I likened you to very clumsily at the beginning. And what recounts an example in January 1869 where he is asked to examine the emaciated corpse of a woman called Mary Lynch. And Mary Lynch is a 28-year-old uh, Irish widow uh, who's admitted to the Philadelphia General Hospital. She's pretty ill, uh, this 
at this period, and the hospital is has a really interesting history in itself. It was it's a hospital, it's got an orphanage, a poorhouse, an insane asylum, uh, and there's a really interesting tale in that several summers before she was admitted, the the female lunas, lunatic asylum. Uh, the walls collapse, killing 18 women and injuring 20 more. So this is the sort of really creepy pre-story to this. So um, Mary Lynch is in the, the hospital. Uh, her family meet her uh, there. They go in and visit her to sort of look after her. They bring her food to eat. They bring her sandwiches with ham and, and, and bologna uh, in them, the sort of type, of type of meat. And what they actually don't realise is that these are infested with white specks, which is roundworm infection. And the woman who is pretty ill herself um, then uh, contracts the, a, a terrible, uh, you know, sort of disease from these, and it emaciates her already very sort of, you know, weakened state. And she she withers away over a six-month period to about 60 pounds. She's absolutely skeletal and, and, and dies shortly afterwards. And uh, John Stockton Hoff um, recounts this in an article in the American Journal of Medical Science... Um, where he describes operating upon her and he describes the you know, cutting her open and he carves open the cavity in her chest to inspect her lungs which were racked with tuberculosis um, and he notices a really odd cyst in her pectoral muscles and under the microscope it's full of thousands, millions of tiny worms. Writing in this article, he, he says that counting the number in one grain of muscle, the whole number of cysts were estimated to be about 8 million. Um, so this is in itself is a really fascinating history. You know, this is about dissection, this is about autopsy, this is about tuberculosis. But actually, what is even more remarkable is what he did afterwards. Because after the autopsy, he takes a slice of skin and from her thighs and puts it in a chamber pot. And then what happens is, decades later... This very skin that he's carved off her, her legs, he uses to bind three of his books, his favourite medical books, which are on topics of women's health and reproduction. And these are these are very sort of rare and expensive books. And the backstory for this is that he is actually a bibliophile. So he's somebody who is obsessed with books. He comes from a very wealthy family, and one of the things that marked out these 19th century, late 19th century medical men was their interest in books. This was one of the ways in which they carved out an identity for themselves. And we know quite a bit about him, because he spent a lot of time collecting books. He collects all sorts of medical books. He's asked to join book collector societies such as the Grolier Club 
in New York, which was established in 1884. And when he dies, it's estimated that he owned around 8,000 books, and many of them are pretty rare. Some of them are 16th and 17th century anatomical texts. Some of them have flaps in them about sort of dissecting a cadaver and all of those kinds of things. He then dies at the age of 56 in a freak accident. Uh, He's thrown from a carriage uh, and dies from the fall. The horse sort of vaults, runs away, and he's chucked out of the carriage. And what happens then is his collection goes to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and in particular to the College of Physicians, which was where he went uh, as a student himself. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating example here but it's actually not the only example and what Megan Rosenblum's brilliant book does is it unpacks all sorts of unusual examples of these books human skin books that are all over the archives and I suppose that what they pose is a really delicate problem for curators in libraries. What is it? How do you deal with these kinds of volumes that basically have human skin in them? You know, there's a lot of talk and debate at the moment about repatriating all sorts of objects to uh, the the countries of their origin. And I think that also, there's also a moral sort of problem about what institutions do with these skin books, skin-covered books. But so the book goes through a sort of a, a whole range of, of sort of different examples from the Bibliothèque Nationale de, de France in, in Paris um, to a tannery in New York, but also um, to the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh. And there, there is a really interesting little notebook here that is alleged to have been bound in the skin of the uh, the of William Burke, uh, who was a nineteenth century body snatcher who operated uh, in Scotland. And you know, when he, when he was accused of this crime, um, he was executed and then publicly dissected by Professor Alexandra Munro. Tertius uh, at the University of Edinburgh and this is this book is now available for people to go and see in uh, the Surgeon's Hall uh, Museum in Edinburgh and which also has his corpse. So there we are Sam a really sort of intriguing example of the use of skin to bind books and I thought this was something that was very apt for Halloween Uh, and and if you want to read more about this Dark Archives is the title of this book uh, and it's well worth a read so there we are Sam what did you think of that? Uh, Unbelievable Um, gross and I think very fitting for the podcast on the history of skin I think everyone's going to feel a little bit queasy after all of that Um, it did make me think of the, you know the queasy aspects of skin. I, I immediately thought about leprosy, 
um, when I was uh, when I was researching this and was wondering how you kind of go about doing it. And uh, unsurprisingly, this has a really fascinating history um, because it, it poses some really interesting research problems. Um, so, yes, leprosy is one of the oldest diseases known to man. And because of that, the, the, the beginnings of leprosy are very much lost to time. But here's the interesting thing. So we know it existed, but we're not entirely sure when, where or, or how it was diagnosed. Because the specific chronic disease, which actually is leprosy, as we understand it in terms of modern science, modern medicine, um, was, wasn't identified um, until the mid-19th century. Um, clinical differentiation happened in 1847 and etiological definition in 1874. So although it must have existed long before that, it's very difficult being absolutely certain that what people are talking about is leprosy as we know it. And it's likely that a lot of the other skin ailments which can be uh, confused for leprosy were actually identified as leprosy at the time. So all sorts of skin diseases, um, vitiligo, psoriasis, lupus, syphilis and Norwegian scabies, I can tell you, James, uh, as well as bubonic plague, smallpox, whatever it might be. Um, all sorts of uh, skin diseases where the skin is, is um, pretty unpleasant one way or another um, cause people to identify it as leprosy. So surprisingly difficult to actually identify in the past and I quite enjoyed that as a historical challenge. Um, so how do you do it? How do you actually get to grips with studying leprosy? Well one of the ways of doing it is seeing how it appears in law um, and there are some but really not very many um, situations in which what well, legal situations in which leprosy um, appears in statutory law. As an example here, which is the writ of de lepre, the writ de lepreso amovendo, the writ de lepreso amovendo, where a man is a lazar or a leper and is dwelling in any town, and he will come into the church or amongst his neighbours where they are assembled to talk with them to their annoyance and disturbance, then he or they may sue forth that writ for to remove him from their company. But it seemeth if a man be a leper or a lazar and will keep himself within this house and will not converse with his neighbours, that, that then he shall not be moved out of this house. Um, a bit of a, a, a tumbling of words there. It comes from uh, the reign of Henry I, so around 1100. And this is a very uh, important period in the history of leprosy because it was so rife and because at this stage we are certain that it actually was leprosy as we understand it. Um, later on it becomes less prevalent though still a problem. This is from the reign of Edward III in 1346 um, and uh, what we've got here is a, a pro proclamation to the mayors and sheriffs of London expelling lepers from the city. All persons who have blemish of leprosy shall within 15 days from the date of these presents quit the city and suburbs aforesaid. No persons shall permit such leprous persons to dwell in their houses on pain of forfeiture of house and property. Another way of looking into it is looking at the rules and the regulations linked with leper houses. As an example here from St Julian Hospital in St Albans, uh, where I was born. Those who were infected were to humble themselves below all other men, that they should wear a habit suitable to their infirmity. 
that those admitted be single persons, or if married, to part by consent and vow chastity, and if afterwards found incontinent to be expelled, to go to church regularly and continue in brotherly love, none to go beyond the bounds prescribed, none to go into the bakehouse or brewhouse, none to touch anything, because persons under such a distemper are not to handle what is for the common use of men." Um, I love that description, James. It made me think about everyone's paranoia of dirty hands around COVID now. Another of those fascinating bridges between present and past. Um, so I'd like to look into that if I was able to do some research into the history of leprosy. Um, but I quite like as well this idea of there being leper houses in London. And I wonder uh, if you could do some kind of geography of sickness in a period and seeing how that changed. So we know these houses may no longer survive, but there's St Giles in Holborn, founded in 1101 by Matilda. Uh, so she's the wife of Henry I. Um, we've got St James's in the Fields beyond Westminster for 14 female lepers, one in Hackney, one in Southwark, in Kent Street, commonly known as The Lock, one in Mile End, Knightsbridge, Hammersmith, um, so very interesting. Some of these in the city, some of them outside the walls of the city of London. Uh, and some of these fell into ruins, others converted to other uses to serve other diseases sometimes, but other uh, not necessarily all with a, a long medical history of use. So, James, yeah, I thought that was fascinating and being able to recreate the geography of, of the sickness. And and um, and I, I think the the link between between sickness and buildings is interesting. Uh, I read something once on the architecture of hospitals in the First World War and how the way that the wards were all built and constructed and laid out um, changes hugely with, with changing understandings of medicine. So you can really trace um, the, the history of something like leprosy. You'd be able to trace it through the, um, I think, the way that the buildings were built, designed and used. Fascinating stuff. Oh, brilliant. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sam, so we've done people being skinned alive. We've done human <laughs> skin binding books. We've done leprosy. And now I want to take us in a completely different direction altogether and i want to talk about sumptuary laws furs and skinning cats 
Well, one of the brilliant websites that I've been checking out is for the project Renaissance Skin, which is a fantastic project, Sam. It's a five-year project funded by the Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator Award. It's based at King's College London. It's led by Professor Evelyn Welsh. And basically what it does is it looks at the wide range of ways in which skin, both animal and human, was conceptualised and used in Europe between 1450 and 1700. This is direct from their website, renaissanceskin.ac.uk. And they have a series of themes. They look at defining skin. They look at protecting skin. They look at all the way in which skin protects. They look at breaking skin. They also look at misbehaving, so the idea of skin and and, and sexual misbehaviour. They look at um, living, uh, so everyday life and skin. And then they look at consuming skin. And some of what follows comes from their brilliant blog, which you should all check out. That's renaissanceskin.ac.uk for a fantastic five-year project all on the history of skin, Sam. Now, Sam, picking up on on this example of looking at furs and looking at cat skins and looking at sumptuary records, what I want to pick up upon is that conversation that I had with the leather expert Mike Redwood, uh, a brilliant man uh, who knows more about leather than anyone else. And in a conversation I was having with him, he just just sort of carelessly, sort of as an aside... Um, was talking about the way in which animal hides would not have been wasted throughout the 16th and and 17th century. And I think one of the things that I want to talk about in relation to that is the popularity of cat skins. You know, cats weren't just, you know, pets during the 16th and 17th century throughout medieval and and early modern Europe they weren't just valued for their ability to keep the house clear of of pesky rats and mice but they were also used for their skin so people actually trapped them skinned them and sold them for their fur and among the the, the most common species of cats were the domestic cat and of course the European wild cat and actually there's a real difference in the kind of fur that you would get from these animals the wild cat has a much more luxuriant and thicker coat and tends to be of a uniform shade unlike the domestic cat which basically could be all sorts of varieties and what this meant was was that you had all sorts of different color furs together and it was much more difficult to sew the the the, the pieces of fur together to stitch them into one sort of piece unlike the the wild cat which was much more uniform um but this was a, a really sort of you know very very common uh sort of form of 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 fur uh during this period now the other thing that i want to talk about is connecting this sort of cat fur to furs that are suitable for earls and in the late 1500s so the end of queen elizabeth the first's reign in in england there were a series of sumptuary laws 
that related to dress code. So in other words, these were laws that laid out precisely what people could wear across the social spectrum according to their class and according to their rank. In other words, the more elevated you were in social status, the more extravagant clothing you could wear. And what is noticeable from these sumptuary laws is that often it was the aristocracy, the social elite that were allowed to wear furs uh, and, and sables, things of that matter. And this is a wonderful document. You can go to the British Library uh, website uh, and you can actually see uh, um, a printed example of this, the brief content of certain acts of Parliament against the inordinate use of apparel. And it lays out precisely the kinds of things that people could wear. And I'll just read you some of, some of this here. Um, uh, None shall wear in his apparel any silk of the colour of purple, cloth of gold tissue, but only the king, queen, king's mother, children, brethren, sisters, so in other words, royalty, and except dukes and marquises to be uh, wear doublets and sleeveless coats, cloth of gold, uh, and purple in mantles of the garter, and cloth of gold, silk, and then it goes down about woolen cloth, velvet, furs, um, can be worn by dukes, marquises, earls. So you get this sense that actually quite valuable and exquisite, luxurious furs were being worn by the nobility. And that leads us to think about um, the kinds of furs that a, a nobleman in the Elizabethan period might have had in his wardrobe. And we have a superb and detailed inventory for William Herbert, the first Earl of Pembroke, who lived between 1506 to 7. Uh, we, we, don't rough, we don't know exactly his, his birth date. Uh, lived between 1506 to 7, um, all the way through dying in 1570, so dying in his early 60s. And this inventory was drawn up in 1561, listing all of his movable goods. And there are all sorts of, of things there. Um, the manuscript is held at the National Art Library in the Victoria and Albert Museum. He's got all sorts of wonderful things, including a unicorn's bone set in gold uh, with one turquoise, two rubies and three diamonds. And along with, with this sort of list of movable goods, there is also a list of his extensive opulent wardrobe titled an inventory of all such apparel furs and jewels as be in the charge of thomas gregory the 17th of august anno domini 1561 and there are all kinds of things here and what's interesting is that most of the outer garments that he would have worn would have been lined with imported and highly expensive furs. Uh, and sometimes several furs would have been used to line things. So it might be squirrel fur edged with sable fur, for example. And what's interesting is that the ubiquity of the fur meant that it was mentioned when there was no fur on an item. Um, and I just want to sort of give you a sense of 
the the opulence of this. So there are various sort of types of fur that he would have had. Sable fur, which is a species of, of marten, like a sort of, you know, stoat uh, kind of thing, um, which is soft, dark brown or black fur um, and is, is, is a beautiful and fair fur. So just to sort of give you some examples of the items here, uh, his sable garments included uh, a long gown of black damask and a guard of velvet and a welt of velvet on either side of the guard laid upon with a pommel lace of silk pearled on the one side set with eight great buttons of gold and with pearls in every button black green and blue enameled furred with sables and another one here a, a gown of black satin faced with sable tails and furred behind with kid, guarded with velvet and welted with the same overthwart, and cut set with three dozen pair aglets white enamelled. So you get a real sense of quite how uh, opulent these were. But alongside the sable, there is also lynx. Uh, lynx is a, is a very, very pricey uh, fur in the 16th century and is is a thick spotted fur you can imagine a sort of lynx as a, as a wild cat and he has he he has several uh lynx lynx coats and these these would be reddish in in summer so a short reddish summer coat and thick gray brownish coat this these are sort of typical of of the lynx lynx coats. Uh, one of them here is a, a gown of russet satin with two plain guards of velvet fringed on every side and a lace of black silk upon the guard set with two dozen eight pair of great aglets full of pearls and furred throughout with lusans. And lusans is the lynx because um, that's the sort of 16th century reference for lusans. Um, he also had squirrel Coat and squirrel would be much more, um, much more commonly found. Uh, red squirrels, in particular, uh, during this period, and, and often uh, these squirrel furs would be edged with other kinds of furs. And just to give you a sort of sense of some of the things that he had here, a cassock of black satin with six welts of the same, and between way two welts, a fringe of black silk and gold with lo buttons of black silk and gold furred with calibra and edged with sables. Um, and then also he rabbit would be used, polecat would be used, genet is another type of cat that uh, were imported from Spain and North Africa and, and also uh, a fox, fox fur uh, would be used. Um, uh, and I'll give you a, a reading here from one of the um, one of the items of clothing here a gown of russet silk sackcloth with one broad guard and two little guards of black velvet furred with fox that sounds beautiful Sam doesn't it uh, there's also ermine uh, ermine would have been used for his coronation and parliamentary robes but also wolf and grey wolf uh, in particular imported into England uh, from from Spain uh, lambskin was another another uh, example and you're wearing lambskin boots today Sam which sound very fine so there we are Sam uh, skinning a cat sumptuary laws and aristocratic fur wearers now Sam just before we go and just before we sign off I have one little Halloweeny anecdote to end on which is connected to 
witchcraft and skin. And have you ever heard of something called an amniotic membrane? Now, this is the skin that would have contained the child in the womb or the, the sort of umbilical cord. And this, throughout the 17th century, was associated with with witchcraft uh, and had various sort of magical properties. And there is an example from the Inquisition in Bologna in Italy from 1699, where there's a deposition of a man called Ludovico Zanardi, and he recounts in this uh, something relating to a local courtesan, so in other words, a, a sort of a local prostitute. Um, and the report has it that about a month ago, I do not remember which day exactly, a certain Domenica, the daughter of Giovanni Battista Mazzoni, who is a poor beggar in the city, both came to my house. Since I was talking about the troubles I have in getting my own daughters married, said Domenica, began to say that she knew very well how a woman could get a man to love her. She told me that she had stolen a piece of coal or cuticle, in other words, this is the amniotic membrane, which envelops baby boys or girls when they are born, and that she obtained this cuticle from a certain Venetian woman who was her mistress, of whom I do not know the name. And this woman, this Venetian woman, is then who's accused of being a whore. Um, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Was supposed to have used this call in order to make people fall in love with her. So there we are. She's accused of witchcraft. She eventually uh, gets off. Um, but it shows you the magical properties that could be associated with particular pieces of skin on the body. Now, I hope that's that's a sort of fitting way to end, and I hope everyone has a, a brilliant Halloween. Well, there we go. A wonderful history of skin, James. I think this has been a classic episode. I shall look forward to listening back on one of my many walks around town. Um, uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, go over to Patreon. 
to our Histories of the Unexpected Patreon account. And if you want to support what we're doing, that would be absolutely superb. We also have a an all-singing, all-dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can find out everything that we've been up to and our back catalogue of episodes. And also our books. Christmas is fast approaching and they do make the best Christmas presents in the whole world. We'll even sign them for you. Thank you all so much for listening, guys. And we're back, I think. We're going to do uh, Tiles and the Yawn next. Ooh, going to be fun. Excellent. Bye, guys. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>